Life happens at the table. It's where relationships grow and bloom, where our community grows as you scooch down and make more room. It's so much more than just what we consume. So it makes sense that the Messiah born in a stable takes his rightful place at the table. It's where he will impress us with power to meet all our needs with excess. It's where he will be given worship and recognition as people recognize their condition. It's where he will eat with the wrong crowd and he'll offend the proud. It's where he'll break bread and fill a cup with his bloodshed. The table is where we witness his abundance. To provide more than we need, a freedom that offers reprieve, a grace that exceeds, a love that was willing to bleed. This all to secure for rebels, enemies, and all who receive a place at the table. All right, HGC, it's a privilege to get to be with you today. Man, I'm so excited about this brand new series. But before we get to that, by now you've heard the news about Pastor Tim's passing. And I think back to just a couple weeks being able to share with you a diagnosis that um, had come through that we knew was challenging. And it was just after that, two days later from that weekend, I had the privilege with Pastor Matt Colomb to go over and visit with Chris and Tim. And one of the things they were praying for was just this not knowing space of whether to go back for more chemo, do another round, or to even consider palliative care hospice. And it was later on that day after our meeting with them that that news came that it was time to move towards hospice. And and we said, hey, you were praying for clarity and we're grateful that God's clarity came. And from there forward, uh, a timeline of maybe two to four weeks wasn't much more than a week. Pastor Tim passed away a little afternoon on Friday, uh, the 24th of February. And we just want you to know how very much we're grateful as a church family for your love, your concern, your support, your encouragement to Pastor Tim, to Chris, to their kids, their beautiful grandchildren. And you have done such an amazing job of demonstrating online and in various ways to them, texting, calling, just to let them know of your great care. And to our church staff, um, this is so significant of a loss. Uh, So many on our staff team obviously love and work with Tim every day. But I think of so many ways that Pastor Tim for the last 21 years impacted lives in the high desert. I think about the way of his men's retreats and the men's committees that he'd gather to do such a great job putting on these great retreats where men would be encouraged, men would come to faith, men would have times to just be honest and vulnerable about what was going on in their life. And I just love that he created that environment, really overhauled that whole ministry on those events to make them so rich. I think of the classes that he taught. And so many of you that were encouraged in how to deal better with anger, how to deal with anxiety and depression, recovery groups that he gave leadership to, support groups that were meeting such real needs. And I just think about the leadership that Tim provided. But I think for so many, even the way our friendship class that met with him every Monday and the way he just loved you so much, And about, I think of the way even how many of you as individuals or couples, families met with him for counseling. Tim was a legendary pastor. He did exactly what God calls a pastor to do. And for that reason, we're able to say with great confidence, not only is Tim better off than he's ever been in his life, 
He is at the throne of God with his savior. But I will say what's so great on top of that, I can't believe anything less than him hearing Jesus say, well done good and faithful servant. So we're gonna miss Pastor Tim so much and we'll let you know more as the days um, unfold about things with a memorial service, celebration of life, things like that. We'll keep you in the loop for sure. But just know as we're all grieving and missing him, um, man, it's a great time to reach out and hug somebody. Great time to love them well as he's loved us so well. We begin a brand new series in the book of Luke that I'm real excited about. Uh, Luke has this fascinating way of following Jesus. I I came across a a quote that in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, Jesus is at a meal, or Jesus is coming from a meal. And it's just such a great thing. The narrative of Luke combines food with Jesus's ministry in so many ways. And so over the next few weeks, as we lead into uh, the Passion Week and uh, the triumphal entry on... um, Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter weekend. We are going to be walking through the gospel of Luke and, and seeing what happens when, in Jesus, when Jesus gets invited to a meal and what comes of that. And you're gonna be so encouraged and just so inspired as you get to know the person of Christ better and how he interacts with people when he breaks bread. It's out of that reality that we are so excited that this year we thought it was the perfect year to host what we would call a Seder experience, Christ in the Passover. That's coming the week before Good Friday on Friday, March 31st. And we're gonna offer this at two different times because we just think the response is gonna be so significant. Everything you need to know about it, a Seder experience, Christ in the Passover. The Seder refers, by the way, to the Passover meal and what the elements represent. Isaac Brickner from Jews for Jesus as he oversees the LA metropolitan area, he's gonna be coming up and presenting to us. And I'm telling you, out of this hour and 15, hour and a half experience, you're gonna be so just blessed by hearing what the elements of the Passover meant and how Jesus fulfilled every one of them. So we want you to know everything you wanna do to get signed up is on Guest Central. Go there right now, click on that button. It'll give you all the things, registration is required. And we'd love for you and your family to attend on the 31st and find out more about what this whole connection to Jesus and the Passover was all about. Well, this series is gonna lend itself to our church's purpose so well. Uh, As we are people equipping every generation to change their worlds for Christ, And we believe that you are called, you have a purpose for being on the planet. And that is to be influential, to be a person of Jesus influence in your relational world, your eight to 15, your oikos. And we just wanted to put this out before you that as we begin a series about what happens when Jesus breaks bread with people, we thought how powerful would it be if we as the people of High Desert Church took the initiative between now and Easter, that uh, second weekend of April, to really be intentional about inviting people into our home or inviting them out to dinner to break bread and just see the intentionality of those conversations. When we prayerfully and strategically 
invite the people from our Oikos into a meal, into that setting? What happens when we just have food and conversation in the middle? What opportunities come for us to share the great news of Jesus, both to encourage believers in our Oikos and to let others know this great news of the gospel who haven't responded to it yet? So I want to encourage you, this series is very Oikocentric, and I want you to encourage you to take advantage of what it would look like to invite people to sit down and have a meal together with you. The first narrative that we're going to look at is going to be actually very different from all the other six that are going to be a part of this series because the first series, the first narrative isn't about Jesus being invited to a meal. It's Jesus as the host. And the environment isn't around a table, but it's on a hillside with literally thousands of hungry people as Jesus feeds them from a single boy's lunch. I'm excited to dive into this great story. And what I want you to do from the very beginning, I want you to find your place in the story. And what I mean by that is this story outside of Jesus has two pretty distinct audiences. The first one are the disciples themselves, not only the 12, and you're going to see them be completely awestruck and confused about what Jesus is doing. But there's others in the crowd that are following Jesus and, and want to continue to follow him closely, believe him to be the Messiah that he's presented himself as. But in these thousands, there's a huge multitude of people who totally are not sure. They've heard of this Jesus, they've heard of this rabbi from Nazareth, but they don't know if he's really anything more than a good teacher and they're about to find out. And I wanna encourage you if you're watching tonight and that's kind of where you're at, you're not really sure of what you wanna do or what you think of Jesus yet. I want you to enter into this story and as you do, I want you to see what he does and then you decide for yourself. Let's dive in in your notes, number one. Jesus cares for all aspects of people. Jesus cares for all aspects of people. If you have a Bible, would you make your way to Luke chapter nine? Luke chapter nine, and we pick up the story in verse 10. This is what it says. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew to them by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. First off, we need to catch you up to a couple of things. Where were the disciples returning from? That's really important. And we actually find that at the beginning of this chapter, Luke chapter nine, verse one. It says they were coming back from a mission. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So here's what we find. Jesus had commissioned the 12 to go out and and really to step into really supernatural ministry on so many fronts, not only um, casting out demons, not only curing illnesses, but teaching, speaking the truth of God's ministry, God's um, allowance of making a way for us to be right with him because Messiah had come. And as they returned, they're just blown away of what happened, what God did, what they were empowered to do. And they can't wait to come back and tell Jesus all about it. So they're spiritually supercharged. They're on a spiritual high and they can't wait to say, Jesus, Jesus, let us tell you these wonderful things that happen. 
However, as soon as they get reunited with Jesus, the crowds here, the crowds want to be around Jesus to hear what he's talking about. And, and we're gonna find out to get their stomachs filled. And so they crowd in around him. And what's fascinating is, is not only do the disciples have this great sense of just, they've been to camp. You know, here we are on an impact weekend. They've seen God do amazing things in their lives. You see the crowds pressing in who have great needs. And then you see this, the thing we didn't read that's also there in Luke 9, is that Jesus's friend, his cousin, his forerunner, John the baptizer, has been murdered by King Herod. And so imagine the weight of all of these pulls coming at Jesus at once. It reminds me of what sometimes you as parents face. You met a high schooler who just passed their driving test and they're so stoked to have their license. And now all they wanna do is hop in the car and drive around and they're pestering you to, to get the keys and go. But you might have an elementary student who's trying to do their homework and is hungry for a snack, kind of pulling on, tugging on your shirt like, hey, pay attention to me. And all at the same time, you have a friend who's lost a battle with cancer. And all, all this going on at once, you don't get to stop and compartmentalize and, and just get space for each. They're all coming in at once. That's the kind of pressure and more that Jesus was facing. But I want you to see how Jesus responded, as it were, to the elementary child who needs help with the homework and tugging on the shirt for a snack. Look at the three things he did. He welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. He welcomed them. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he gave healing to those who need healing. One of the things that I love about High Desert Church is that we understand ourselves to be the hands and the feet of Christ. And I noticed when I was reading this passage, these are the things that we're about. When people from our community, when people from your Oikos come and visit at one of our campuses in a weekend service or come to an entry point event or whatever it is, we welcome them. And ours is not to judge them. Ours is not to figure out where they are on a spiritual spectrum. Ours is to welcome them as is because that's how we've been welcomed by God. And so we do just like what Jesus did. But we also don't leave it there. We proclaim to them the kingdom of God. We communicate the great news of the gospel because we believe that that's what they need more than anything else in their life is to be right with their creator through the shed blood of the savior. And we will never stop doing that. And finally, we don't have the capability to heal those with diseases, but we sure know who does. And we pray to that God and we pray for your prayer requests that you put on your cards every single week for you, people in your family, the people in your relational world. And we constantly bring them before the Father praying that he would work and act. So these are the things that we do. And I love that at HCC, we never wanna forget the example that Jesus laid for us, that these are the things we should walk therein. And that's what we're all about. Today, we're gonna to see contrasted is both the, the needs of the crowds pressing into Jesus, but the desire of the disciples to just get alone with him. Jesus, you do so much. Tell them to go away. We want time with you. And we're gonna see the way that Jesus responds in your notes. Jesus exhibited his supernatural power to demonstrate to his disciples who he is and how he cares for people. We're gonna see Jesus do the impossible, but the goal is not to do magic tricks. 
That's never the goal of miracles. John, the, the writer of that gospel, calls them signs. They're always pointing to something. In this case, Jesus wanting to point to his disciples, you don't see what I see. Not only in who they are and how valuable they are, but their needs and how I can care for them. And that's what we're gonna see powerfully in this narrative today. Number two in your notes, Jesus cares for people even when the resources don't appear to be available. Jesus cares, meaning not just emotionally, he takes care of the needs of people even when the resources don't appear available. Let's continue in Luke's gospel, chapter nine, verse 12. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because you are in a remote place or we are in a remote place. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down. The 12, probably feeling frustrated by not having the access to Jesus that they want, not having the ability to go on retreat and just download and debrief all the amazing things they have seen the power of God do through their lives. They want the crowds to go away. They're being very practical, by the way, not just selfish, but practical. There's no food for them here. And they've got to get to other remote villages and get out there to get something to eat and find somewhere to stay because there's nothing here to take care of them. So they're being very practical, but I think they also have this selfishness of we just want Jesus to ourselves, at least tonight. Their whole lives have been about ministry, but they just want this private time with him. They, and interestingly enough, by the way, they don't request it. They direct, it's an imperative verb, a command. Jesus, send them away. They're telling God what to do. <laughs> I love it. And we laugh, but we kind of go, yeah, I've done that too, multiple times. Jesus responds though with a counter directive give them some food. Now it's a fascinating statement. It is an imperative verb, it's a command. He doesn't tell them how to do it. He just says, we're not gonna send them away, you feed them. And the disciples, what's fascinating is, I think as we read the Bible sometimes, we don't read a little bit more for sarcasm. I just gotta think that there was some sarcasm going, Jesus, there is no food here except this kid's lunch. Five loaves of bread and two fish. That's it. This place is barren. There's nothing else to eat here. It's John's gospel that tells us that the the disciple who brings that news to Jesus is Andrew. Andrew found this little boy and brings his lunch. And part of me goes, man, maybe there was some faith. Like, Jesus, here's the food we got. But I'm thinking, Jesus, there's nothing out here. All we got is a kid's lunch. Almost to prove there's no food here, send them away. Luke records that there are about, excuse me, 5,000 men. And it's really important. That Greek word is specific to men. It's not a generic word for people. So when you start doing that math, most commentary writers believe that crowd at least, at least be eight to 10,000 were there all together. 5,000 men, but we had women and children, and you're probably looking at more like eight to 10,000. And I was thinking in my mind to get a visual, when was the last time I've been in environments that have more than 10,000 and definitely environments that have less. And the last time I could think of just a, a, like a crisp number 
what used to be Citizens Arena down in Ontario, now called Toyota Arena, seats and maxes. I did. I looked online at about 11,000. And I was there one time for a Cal Baptist graduation and the place was packed up in the seats, down on the floor. And I'm thinking that's about right. That's probably about 10,000 people that were there. I think about all the traffic getting in. I think about trying to get out. The place was mayhem. And so if that gives you any kind of idea, if you've ever been to that arena before, that thing packed out about 10,000 or so. So without any more information, Jesus has just said, you feed them. And he tells them to break them up into groups of 50. So now you've got, rather than one big mob, you have at least, just based on the 5,000 men, you have uh, 50 or 200 groups of 50, of 200 groups at minimum of hungry, hangry people at this point. And it reminds me when I was thinking about that, when Jesus directs them to start breaking into groups and, and you can tell for, for feeding, for catering this meal, breaking them into smaller groups makes tons of sense. But again, one kid's lunch. Like Jesus, you're having us split them into groups, giving us and them the impression you're gonna feed them from what? I think back to the 23rd Psalm that we leaned on a lot in our last series And I think about that great phrase, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Just calms me down, causes me to sit and not even eat sheep, right? No one wants to sit down in a green pasture. You want to eat it. The good shepherd sits down, calm down, stay with me. I think about the disciples' feelings as they start breaking them into groups. And and let's just get into the storyline a little bit. What in the world must they have been thinking? Jesus, it'd just be so much easier to dismiss the people. You're being illogical. You're being impractical. And and, uh, by us going over and splitting them into groups, we're giving them some kind of hope that you're about to feed them. We don't have food. We don't have the money. We don't have the town to go get it from. This isn't going to happen. So I think all these thoughts were made so, they would definitely be what would be running through my brain. And I've seen Jesus do stuff. By this time in Luke chapter nine, I've seen Jesus do amazing stuff, but I've never seen him do this. And in my head, I'm going, I, I'm, I'm skeptical at best, doubtful for sure. And when you think about this whole idea, look in your notes, they were arguing with the God of unlimited supply about what they perceived as limited resources. This is the whole thing. They forgot who they were talking to. And there were times when they would see the God man, the God part of Jesus on display doing the supernatural and be blown away. And there were other times they were with the man and they would watch the things he'd do and the way he'd love people and care for them. And they're blown away by that. But there's some dissonance in this situation when they just did not believe that the God man in front of them had the capability to do what he was about to do. I think about that and I think about my own life and I go, God, there have been so many occasions when I have said, I have no other hope or help, but you, there is no way this gets better. No way this gets figured out unless you intervene. And I've recognized him for who he is, but I will tell you there are far more times I've been out of my mind going, there's no hope. There's no way this gets done. There's no way this gets accomplished. There's no way seeing this through. And I'm so grateful for passages like these because it helps me relate to the disciples in as a disciple of Jesus today that I so can relate to. 
because I know I would have been in this place of skepticism and doubt, thinking about what in the world are we gonna do? You see, you and I have done our own share of bad decision-making that has gotten us in a pickle many times relationally, financially, health, whatever it is. And we're begging God to save and, and rescue. But then I think about the times when God has seemed to open the door, leading us into a circumstance and then seemingly fail to provide. You feed them. With what? You continue forward with the missions trip that I've led you into, even though you haven't raised all the funds and there's a couple days to go. You continue forward with that education that I've, I've called you into. I've made it so clear in the past, though you don't have the financial standing for it. You move forward with the adoption that I've lined, aligned for you that has both challenges and hoops to go through and financial realities. You step into that ministry venture that I've called you into, even though all the odds are stacked against you. These are the ones that cause us especially to scratch our heads. God, you seem to make clear, you've given the directive, you feed them. But I don't have the resources I need to do that. That's really what this story is all about, and especially through the lens of the disciples. The crowds are just hungry slash hangry, but it's the disciples who are bearing the ownership, bearing the weight of leadership. Jesus, we don't have it. Don't you tend to respond the very same way that the disciples did? You're praying to the creator of the universe, Psalm 50, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet you're so convinced he doesn't have the ability to provide what you need in this moment. You and I do this all the time. In your notes, just like the disciples, we're learning who Jesus is one experience at a time. This is so true in our lives. Just like the disciples 2,000 years ago, current disciples today are learning about who Jesus is one experience at a time. He continues to reveal himself, make himself known to us so that we will in turn lean in and love him more, lean in and trust him more for what he has next. Peter, one of those who was there that day, by the way, at this scene with no apparent food to feed the crowds, this is what he would later write to a group of Christians who were being persecuted and definitely wondering, God, where are you? First Peter chapter five, verses six and seven, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Watch this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Some of these words are really important. Place yourself in a position of humility. I love this definition, dismissing reliance upon oneself. Stop thinking that you are the source, you're the provider. You're the one who's gonna make it work. Humble yourself. Stop relying on your own dependence or on your own reliance that he may lift you up, that he may provide for you. And then this idea of anxiety, this word is powerful in the original Greek language. It means to be drawn in different directions, to be fractured. 
Man, how true is that when anxiety takes hold and overwhelms our heart, overwhelms our head, is that we're fractured, we're pulled in multiple directions, not being able to say, God, you know the need. God, you know my fears. God, you are here. You are with me. And the verb tense, cast, rather than an imperative verb that is giving a directive is more like a verb that would say having cast. The assumption is that as followers of Christ, we have already cast our anxiety, our cares upon him. And that is so powerful because it's a previously decided action. I've actually made that decision, but as I have, as I've cast my cares upon him, now God remind me that you care for me. Remind me you've never left or forsaken me. Remind me that you're here. I would often, as we were preparing students and others for global missions trips and in the fundraising sequence of that time, I'd also often remind them of this great quote by the missionary Hudson Taylor. He said, depend upon it, depend upon it. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. What a great, great reminder. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. There's the thing, by the way, I want you to catch about all this, the wild part of it to me. When Jesus tells them, directs them to go separate the people in groups of 50, they do. As confused as they were, as just, this is nuts, this is, this is actually leading people on, whatever thoughts they had, they still obeyed. And we would do well to follow that part of their example, even if they were completely in unbelief of what was gonna happen next, they took Jesus at his word. Finally today, number three in your notes, offer to Jesus what you have and watch him show you what he can do with it. Offer to Jesus what you have and let him show you what he can do with it. Chapter nine, verse 16 and 17 of Luke, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Before we go any further, did you for a moment stop and consider how plainly I just read a miracle that happened? I just read over it like it was any other dialogue in scripture or any other narrative. Jesus got in the boat and went from here to there and blah, blah, blah. Jesus uh, went to this town and preached the gospel. Jesus looked to heaven, broke bread and fed 5,000 plus people with a kid's lunch. Do, 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 do. And I just go, God, what is wrong with us? I do the same thing. I'll just read right over the top of powerful things that there is no explanation for outside of God being God. Now, maybe there's one of two reasons that you could just read right over what is a bona fide miracle. We use the word miracle really loosely in our world today, but a miracle being that which defies the laws of science. Nobody creates a meal for thousands out of one kid's lunch, no matter how teeny tiny you break it off. And 12 basketfuls left afterwards. But maybe it's one of two reasons for you. Maybe number one, you read the miracles of scripture and you would even say, Todd, I believe that. I believe 2000 years ago, Jesus fed the multitudes from one kid's lunch, but I just don't see it today. 
I don't see the things I prayed for that would need supernatural intervention. I don't see God showing up that way. And it just feels so disconnected from my life. Okay. Maybe for some of us though, it's a little further. You would say, Todd, I'm not really sure any of that ever happened. I feel like it's folklore, it's tall tales. Whenever I hear, hear tall tales, I always think of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox, right? I mean, that just cracks me up when I think about that story. Here's a, a little tidbit of the legend talking about Paul Bunyan. He cleared forests with one ax of his swing. Um, he and his trusty bovine, Babe the Blue Ox, dug the Great Lakes to quench the thirst of fellow loggers. And he created the Mississippi River by simply dragging his ax behind him. This huge um, lumberjack that just did all these things that created a way um, for the, the middle of our country and moving west to be cleared. And you look at that and you go, of course, that stuff didn't happen. It's a tall tale. But the sad thing is some of us have done that with the miracles of scripture. You might look at this story, this narrative today and say they got to a remote place and, and the test, the, the disciples test, uh, faith was tested by one boy's little lunch. But when they went to eat, they all split it and everyone else already brought their lunch and they were all good. This didn't really happen like the Bible says. And I'm just gonna say this, you're welcome to your opinion, everyone is. But I will say what we have to be careful about with scripture is when we come to even what appear to be the tall tales, when we come to supernatural miracles where Jesus does what only God can do, you have only a few different options to put it in. And especially if you're going to believe that the Bible is the authoritative, um, infallible word of God, we can't dismiss things like this as tall tales and believe that the truth of every other part of scripture is there. This one, eh, maybe just didn't happen the way it says. Man, it all, it all is scripture. And we believe it. At High Desert Church, the Bible is our authoritative word. And we live according to it. We live underneath and we believe it to be completely true. So you have to deal with that in your own way. I'm gonna move forward because I do believe Jesus fed the multitudes with one kid's lunch. Jesus did this normal practice of what you would do before a Jewish meal is you would thank the provider. You'd thank God, Yahweh himself for his provision. It says he began to break the bread, break the fish into pieces. There was something about, Jesus needed to do none of this, needed to not bless the food, needed to not break up the, the um, bread and the fish, but somehow in the breaking of these things and offering things, maybe just like he would do is sitting down to any meal, this is when the miracle begins. This is the headwaters of it. When um, it says that these, these elements, this food was set before the people, it's probably one of the greatest understatements in scripture as though food just started showing up and appearing and people ate till they were full. They had, by the way, we'll get into this in a minute about the disciples and the crowds. They knew there wasn't food to eat. So this had to be so stunning to everyone who was present. Where is he getting this from? Well, I thought this, I thought one of the best ways, rather than trying to explain it my own way, there's a great series out that many of you watch called The Chosen. And this scene from The Chosen from Luke chapter nine is so powerful. Jesus has just done everything we just said. He's broken the bread, he's broken the fish, he has prayed to the Father. And this is what ensues next. Take a look. Now you think so. Yeah. 
I'm giving you spiritual food. But you clearly need actual food now. So let's eat! Wasn't that just great? I just love the way they captured the awe and the surprise in the disciples as one lid keeps getting flipped over another and they're seeing their baskets filled with food. And not only the shock and the surprise, but then when Jesus says, let's eat, and everyone goes crazy. I imagine it to be so much like that and just this sense of God, look at what you've done. It wasn't somber, it wasn't, hmm, let's really kind of analyze what's happened here. It was, we're hungry, Jesus is feeding us, yay God. And I wonder about the times when God shows up and he supplies our needs, he meets us in powerful ways, whether providential or supernatural. I wonder what we do with that. Do we stand amazed and just simply soak in the holy moment of what's happened? Do we readily bring back to mind the power and the work of God, reminding ourselves of what he's already done in our lives? Do we give God praise for the ways that he's shown himself strong and sure in our relational worlds? Do we let them know God is a God of provision? God is a God who meets me and rescues me. I want you to know what God's done in my life. This is what this should move us to. This should be the outcome. When our daughter Aaliyah uh, turned 18, and it's wild to think that was five years ago, we um, were intentional with the kind of gift we got her on her 18th birthday. And it included a set of stacking rings. And the significance of the stacking rings was to remind her God had done so much in her life from the time she left the high desert and went to Redlands halfway through her high school career. We just wanted her to have a, a readily reminder of the ways that God had provided and by the stacking rocks that were like, or stacking rings, they were like stacking rocks. Altars of remembrance of God, look at what you've done. God, look at how you've provided. Look at how you care for me. Having cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. 
And that was so meaningful to us to give to her. Look in your notes. When God shows himself strong, don't just experience it and forget it, but commemorate it. Commemorate it in such a way that you won't forget the next time you're staring at a lack of resources that you are wondering if God is able to provide. Men, commemorate these times when God shows himself strong to remind you that you have these altars of remembrance. You have these stacks of rocks of the way he's met your needs and beyond. And that will give you such great encouragement when you're looking at a new need that you're gonna face in the future. The Bible says all the crowds were ate and were satisfied, not just a snack, but a meal with plenty left over. This is a bona fide miracle. There's no way around it. The disciples not only passed out the food, but went back and watched this. They went back and they picked up how many? 12 basketfuls of leftovers, one for each of them to remind them Jesus is able to do exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine. He can do from a small boy's lunch what you can't even fathom. Don't put him in a box and trust him for big things. I think about what that was like as the disciples were coming back and gathering. They were imagining initially, you know, Jesus send them away. Jesus says, you feed them. Here's a kid's lunch. To now they're picking up the leftovers, one per person, one basket filled per, per disciple. And just blown away at the way that God can do what only God can do. What must this experience have done in the hearts and minds of Jesus's disciples, both that day and forward into the future? Simple question for you as we close, what about for you? What has God's means of meeting your needs? What is the ways that God has shown himself so strong in your life? What kind of lasting mark has that left on you? What was it like when you've seen God provide in ways so clearly that you recognize were providential or supernatural? How did it affect your faith? Was it powerful in the moment, but then you just kept on moving to the next issue? Was it powerful in the moment, but you struggled the next time you'd face a situation where your faith was tested? And by the way, that's how the story goes for the disciples. It would literally be hours later that same night, they're out on a boat. The boat looks like the, the storms have risen so high that seasoned professional fishermen are fearing for their lives when Jesus comes walking out on the water and ultimately would calm the sea. They quickly forgot what Jesus had done for them and done for their, the crowds at lunch that day and quickly go back to a place of fear. Or... When Jesus met your needs, was it powerful in the moment and something that you remembered the next time that you faced a lack of resources and you approached the throne of God, aware of his unlimited supply to take care of your provision? That's what we wanna grow into. That's a posture we wanna have and develop more and more in our lives. As we look to Jesus in the midst of our need, having already cast our anxieties upon him because we're so confident in his care for us. By the way, that's how that walks away with the disciples, those who had put their faith in Christ. What about the crowds? Remember we said the crowds had come to hear Jesus. They didn't pack lunches. They knew there was no food to be found. They, they knew the disciples didn't run for takeout and DoorDash. What did this do in their lives? They had heard Jesus talk about the kingdom. They'd heard Jesus talk more than any other rabbi ever had in a way that was very special. And even talked about himself, sorry, talked about himself as Messiah. 
Did the crowds pivot that day and believe he was more than a good teacher, more than a good rabbi, but actually a savior to be believed? I wonder about that in our lives. We have people in our relational worlds who are in the crowds, those, some of them who have not placed their faith in Christ. And when they see God's provision in our lives, when we're able to tell them and give him the credit, what does that do in them? When they know that it's not our wealth, it's not our generosity that is taking care of us, but that it's a a good God who has all the resources of heaven to provide. And even when those resources spill out into their lives, we're not just because we're good people, but because we love God and we love to share, are we sharing with them? What kind of mark does that leave in their lives? This is what happens when you break bread with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this amazing miracle in Luke chapter nine, a miracle that reminds us of the storehouses of heaven, a miracle that reminds us of your ability to provide even when we think things are impossible. We're so grateful for that. And so grateful, not just for a story in our Bibles, but God, grateful for your work in our lives, your ways of provision that have come at just the right time and have met our needs so powerfully. And I just pray, God, that we would not forget, would we be reminded and would we continue to commemorate the times of your amazing care for us? And I would say this to you, if you would be, you would say, Todd, I kind of identify most with people in the crowd. I've come to hear and see what Jesus is like, but I've not put my faith in him yet. Can I tell you this? On a weekend when I share with you about Pastor Tim's passing, what was so true about Pastor Tim was his great desire for each and every person that he came across to know Christ, to respond in faith to the gospel, and to live their lives as unto the one and only savior of the world. Now, what a great thing. And by the way, Tim wasn't just about that for other people. Tim was committed to that himself. He finally, with his own perception, is able to see the Jesus that he's waited his whole lifetime to get to see. Can I say to you today, on behalf of Pastor Tim, he would want you to A, admit, Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Recognize that you've lived your life your way, not God's way. And as a result, there's a break in the relationship with your heavenly father. Would you be believe? Would you believe that this Jesus that we've read about today didn't just feed the crowds, but this Jesus hung on a cross and died, creating a way for our sins to be atoned, for us to be reconciled with the creator of the universe. Would you believe that Jesus is the only savior available? Or would you see choose? Would you choose to say, Jesus, I need to depend upon you, not on me, to somehow be good enough for God. What you did at the cross settled my account, took away my blame. I choose to put my faith and trust in what you've done, not what I can do. And I wanna follow your example the rest of my life. You can make that decision today. And I just know, man, I know that would thrill the heart of Pastor Tim that you made a decision to follow his savior. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your care over our lives. We pray in the great and mighty name of Jesus, amen.